When a child is chronically defiant or resistant or misbehaving, one of the things I'm always going to look at is, does this child feel closely connected and attached with that parent? Do they feel liked by the parent? Do they feel enjoyed by the parent? Do they feel cherished and seen as is, not, you know, constantly told how they should be different or better? Welcome to Atomic Moms, a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and I celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world in order to share their unique stories and the universal experience of raising a child. You can find us on our website, AtomicMoms.com, on social media, and also on iTunes. Subscribe so you can get a new episode every week. I hope you all had such a beautiful Mother's Day. I hope you got some rest. I hope you got to watch some television uh, guilt-free by yourself, whatever you wanted to watch. Uh, These days, Netflix and chill with my husband and I, um, one of us picks what we want to watch and the other one goes and reads. (laughs) Oh, God. Speaking of reading, I am so busy preparing for an upcoming Atomic Moms interview. You might have already seen her on the news recently, but I will be speaking with Maria Torpakai about her new memoir, A Different Kind of Daughter, The Girl Who Hid from the Taliban in Plain Sight. I'm reading this book right now. Uh, I keep crying when I read it in public. It's really embarrassing Um, because I am so touched by the relationships Uh, that she has. Her parents were in an arranged marriage between feuding tribes, and yet her father, the love and respect he showed towards her mother, who was the only girl in her village who went to high school, and how he secretly helped her continue her education. It is such a beautiful love story. And then when they had their daughter, Maria, her father knew that Maria was different. He recognized that she had the same spark that his own sister had. But he had watched his sister die because in the tribal regions of Pakistan, where the Taliban rule and the women have no rights, women would become a shell of themselves. So he supported his daughter in her education as well as in her mother's. And Maria burned all of her girl clothes in the front yard when she was very young. And she started dressing as a boy because it was her only way out of this system and it was how she could play sports. And now she is a world-renowned squash player. I was crying yesterday because I was reading a part in the book where, where Maria describes how her mother had watched a girl be stoned to death by her own father. And right when I read that moment, my dad called me actually. And it just made me, um, it made me so sad for all of the people in this world who aren't able to acknowledge the connection between parent and child, or who live in parts of the world where daughters aren't respected and where they aren't able to show their love and where such atrocities can occur. So I am beyond honored 
to have Maria on Atomic Moms coming up. And I cannot wait to share her courage and her wisdom and her total badassery. So today's episode is all about parenting with connection. I interviewed Susan Stiffelman uh, this past January, and I'm going to be playing that interview for all of those of you who have not heard it the first time. And even if you've already heard it, you might get something else this round. Uh, Our kids are constantly changing and presenting new, exciting challenges for us. So you might get a different lesson this time around. I am a huge fan of Susan Stiffelman. She is the author of Parenting Without Power Struggles and Parenting with Presence. She is a marriage and family therapist, a credentialed teacher, and a licensed psychotherapist. She says on her website, that while she draws on her professional training and experience, her approach to raising kids falls into step with the spiritually based understanding of people like Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie. Um, And I'll just throw it out there that she knows them both personally and works with them intimately. Uh, I've just started reading Byron Katie's book, Loving What Is, Four Questions That Can Change Your Life. Check it out. Um, It's pretty amazing. And in it, she says, it's not the problem that causes our suffering. It's our thinking about the problem. So while I was in bed the other night and I was thinking about how thinking is the problem, I said to my husband, you know what? I think all of our thoughts are lies. To which he like shot up out of bed and was like, Ellie, are you trying to give me an existential crisis? (laughs) So I'm trying to think less. I'm trying to be more present with my child. How about – why don't I just take trying out of my vocabulary? I'm being more present with my child. I am thinking less when I'm around her. I put my phone away and I don't respond to emails or texts sometimes for days. And I think Susan Stiffelman would give me a high five for that because she is all about parenting with presence and parenting without power struggles. And she's going to talk to us about how to do it. Stay tuned. Hello, it's Susan. Hi, Susan. It's Ellie with Atomic Moms Podcast. Hi, Angel. How are you? Hi. Reading Parenting Without Power Struggles. I mean, this is a book everybody needs. Like, even this is what's so much fun about the podcast for me personally. I feel like these topics aren't just about raising children, it's about Mm. reparenting ourselves so that we can just be better people in this world. Definitely. When I signed that first book with my publisher and I went to New York and met with them over at Atria, Simon & Schuster, and the head of the publishing, you know, we had this actually prolonged meeting. It sort of messed up the schedule, I guess, because we kept going and going. And one of the things she said is, I want to take these ideas and I see how relevant they are for me to work with people in the workplace. And not to mention husbands and wives and mothers-in-law and, you know, because in any relationship, you can easily generate a power struggle if you do a lot of the things that we instinctively do. Like, why did you do that? Just beginning a sentence with WHY, whether it's a child or a partner or a, an employer, is likely to put that person on the defensive. So the, the ideas are universal, as you said. They're just universally applicable. Can we talk a little bit about especially for our listeners who haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, you talk about coming at 
parenting from a place of being in charge rather than in control. Yeah. And can you sort of expand on that idea of the difference between being in charge and wanting to be in control? Okay, perfect. You know, um, can I just sort of give people the the visual that I use a lot, the hand? Absolutely. Okay, so we're not um, visual. You're not seeing me, but I've done enough audio conversations that I think people will be able to follow this. So everybody just picture your right hand kind of rolled into a fist. Um, Don't worry, you're not going to punch anybody. So your right hand represents the parent and the left hand is going to represent the child. And if you held your hands out in front of you and you held the right parent hand above the left, I would call that being in charge as a calm, confident captain of the ship. So when the right hand or the parent hand is on top. It's kind of in the natural hierarchy. Children need and want to be able to depend on us, to rely on us, to navigate, you know, whether things are going smoothly or or if you use the captain of the ship analogy, through the rough and stormy seas of life. So that's that's about being in charge. That's about being the grown up in the room. And that's what our kids sometimes they might might not indicate this, but they really, really want because it's comforting when they know that, you know, there's a big person there that kind of has the lay of the land and can foresee, you know, problems and storms or get them through the tough stuff. You know, somebody doesn't invite them over or, you know, they aren't feeling well or they're uneasy about a situation or they don't know, you know, how to proceed or how to you know, get ready for a big test, whatever it might be, they're struggling emotionally or psychologically or academically. They want to know that there's somebody they can lean on, and that's us. So the right hand above the left is you as the captain of the ship, calmly in charge. Now, if your child says, "Um, I really want to go to the mall at 10 o'clock with my other 12-year-old friends, okay, then you as that calm person in charge might say, well, sweetie, that's, you know, that's not really a wise decision. I'm afraid not. And your child, because, you know, she might consider it to be social suicide if she doesn't show up with her other friends, will say, why not? And in that situation, if you're, if you start explaining while she's upset and angry and coming at her, while she's upset and angry with reasons and explanations and justifications, then your hand is now side by side with hers. And I call that position where nobody's in charge, the two lawyers, where you're pushing against each other, arguing, you know, trying to negotiate, you know, in a mean and angry way, convince the other person that you're right. Okay, so you get that. That's the two lawyers. I've spent a lot of time there with my own lawyer mother. (laughs) Right. Well, that's a new phrase, the lawyer mother. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, and yeah, I I do that with my toddler too, man. They, Mm -hmm. we can get to that place of the, the fist to fist really young. Like it doesn't take many months before we can be there. Yeah. Yeah. And then it can get even worse where, the child says, I hate you. You you treat me like a baby. You never let me do anything. And you say, you know what? I do so much for you. Go to your room. You're grounded. And now for all intents and purposes, the child's hands on top, you're below. And the way you know that you're down there is that you're bribing and threatening. And eating chocolate. 
and eating chocolate, and you feel out of control and desperate. So, so in this effort to kind of feel like you're in control when you feel out of control, that's where the control word comes in, and you will scramble. And I call that position the dictator because dictators actually don't have any authentic power. They rule by um, intimidation, so they can wipe out your bank account. You know, they can kill you, throw you in jail. That's about control. So these three positions are so basic to my work, Ellie. It's like when you're in charge, you're calm and you're confident. When you're out of control, you move into that dictator that tries to overpower your child because you feel all triggered and stirred up. And then, of course, in between that is the lawyer mode where you're just arguing and explaining and justifying. Not to say you shouldn't do that, but when your child's really upset, really, you know, not kind of capable of processing all those good explanations or your wonderful pearls of wisdom, then (laughs) it's like knocking on the door of their left logical brain and they're not home because they're over in their right emotional feeling brain. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I know, uh, I know Dan Siegel speaks to that also, Mm -hmm. but there are a Mm -hmm. lot of people that have never even heard this and this idea that we cannot... It's like speaking a different language to them. They cannot process it. When I, I mean, I get it. Like when I'm being histrionic in the past, right. if I had been histrionic ever, which I never have been because I'm so calm and centered. <laughs> I know that that you can't rationalize someone in that with that, no. someone in that moment. And it's science. It's not just yeah. that they don't. They're choosing not to get it, but our brains can't process it. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned him because we're we're getting together for a, a dialogue tomorrow, Dan Siegel. So the idea is, you know, the way I picture it is like this, because I'm very, very visual and I like to make things really easy for parents to kind of grasp and hold on to. So it's not super, my work is not really theoretical and, you know, lofty and like I am very much down to earth here. So picture this around your child's belly when they're angry or afraid or upset or hurt or struggling, there's this kind of roiling, gaseous mass of emotion just going all over the place, right, in their tummy. And in an effort to get our help with those big feelings, they wrap this gauzy, flimsy wrapping paper around that mass of feeling and they not literally and they but they sort of gather that up in this flimsy way and they they lay it in front of us and say help now the gauzy wrapping paper that contains all those big emotions is the word part of their message or their complaint so the child might say you love my brother more than me right so that's the gauzy wrapping paper that's the flimsy paper that is just a feeble attempt to, to get these feelings out and in your direction for your help. But what we do is we mistake the gauzy wrapping paper, the word part of a child's message with the actual message that they're needing to convey. It reminds so, me so much of acting because so you wow. know, you don't you don't act the line. You don't you're not supposed to be wow. you don't act the line. Like that's the biggest acting oh, lesson my gosh, ever. I've never heard that. Yeah, you don't you don't actually feel what you're saying. It's the subtext. It's what's behind what you're saying. And that's what makes a character interesting. Oh, wow. Well, then, yeah, it's exactly the same. So the child says, you love my brother more than me. 
Because that's just a flimsy attempt to sort of get some words to sort of contain this thing that's going on inside. And we literally, we take that literally and we engage with that left logical, rational, language-based side of their brain, which is primarily left. It's not quite that simple, but for this purpose, we'll say it's more in the left. And we respond or react back with something logical, rational, and language-based, which is, of course, I don't love your brother more than me. But what might really be going on in that belly of his or hers is nobody ate lunch with me today. Or the teacher, I felt embarrassed in front of the teacher when I didn't know the answer to the thing she asked me. Or the girls at recess made fun of my shoes, right? Mm -hmm. But rather than being that astute and direct, many children, like many adults, aren't necessarily that adept at saying, you know, I'm really in touch with my feelings. And I think what's going on for me in this rumbling in the background of my emotional life is, you know, I'm feeling kind of insecure about my friendships at school. No, it's going to be, what can I look around me and grab? You love my brother more than me. You never make dinner that I like. Yes. And in the book, you talk about above the neck and below the neck. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually is easier for me to remember than the left brain, right brain thing for some reason. Because, yeah, Yeah. what we're saying is above the neck, but it's that's not actually what's going on. There's there's the whole stew happening below the Mm -hmm. neck that that's where it's coming from. Yeah. I sometimes have parents and you guys listening can do this. Imagine take your hand, you know, just flat, flat hand and not with any force, but just gently, gently, barely making contact, sort of karate chop in front of your neck and then wave your neck, your hand upwards. So everything from the neck up, you're just waving your hand above your face that's called neck up and everything from the neck down, if you wave it, I'm doing it right now. How silly is that? But everything with your hand waving from the neck downward into your chest and, and belly is the neck down. And so when a child is expressing emotions or they're upset, they're not habitating the neck up. They're not occupying that real estate. They're in their neck down territory and that's where you want to meet them if you're going to be effective in guiding them through that and eventually sweetheart now that you're settled down let's talk about you know how you're you know what you were saying about my brother your brother or going to the mall but in that moment when the child's angry and upset and they're not over in that rational part of themselves and you come at the child because you're feeling freaked out that they're unhappy right We make our children responsible for how we feel as parents or as people. If I have an upset child, it must be a failure on my part as a parent, or I'm so uncomfortable with my child's lack of popularity, let me rush in and fix it because it makes me feel insecure or it brings up my feelings from my childhood when nobody ate lunch with me. So let me rush in now and give her advice she's not asking for and fix the problem. You you say in the book, and I just want to share this with our listeners because it's it's exactly what you're saying now, but I love it so much. Um, you write, if you want children to be receptive to you, clean up what's going on between your ears. The mm-hmm. thoughts and stories that precipitate your anger, fear, or disappointment before you try to have any influence over them. Yeah. And, oh man, it's just so much work for us. Like we, because we've got to figure our stuff out because if we don't, then we can't be present for them. And in your book, you talk, I mean, what's amazing is you give all of these 
wonderful examples of how we can connect with our children. But I'm, I'm just sort of struck by uh, the examples you give just how parents are so wrapped up in their own drama and they don't even realize how much they're just trying to like put on their kids. Yeah. Yeah. That we project onto our kids, all our unfinished stuff. And, you know, I wrote a second book and I took these ideas much, much deeper, Parenting with Presence. It just came out a few months ago. And I talk in there a lot about sort of the, um, the journeys of several parents I've worked with. For instance, there's one woman who called me for coaching and such a sweet woman and really got stirred up when her five-year-old daughter would say no. Now, this was a woman who was raised with, with, I think her other siblings were all brothers. It was a, I can't remember where she was from, but the sort of the cultural, you know, norm was that children are seen but and not heard and emotions, big emotions were not to be expressed and, and kids were supposed to be cooperative and obedient, particularly little girls. So she had this intention on the one hand, kind of in her mind, in her uh, current state, that she didn't want her daughter to be brought up like that, like not feeling it was okay to have feelings or to be upset, right? So on the surface, that was her position and her intention in raising her daughter was to not repeat the, you know, have the restrictions in place that had been in place for her as a child. But then she happened to get a very strong-willed five-year-old who had no problem at all (laughs) saying no. Sounds like mine. Yeah. Yeah, Are you sure I wasn't that patient? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but your daughter's not five. (laughs) No, exactly. Um, and so, you know, we started, we did some work and I think I only worked with her once or twice, but it was so deep what happened just as I got her to sort of re-experience what this old stuff was for her, the taboo against no, and the feeling that it brought up for her of rage actually, at not having been allowed to express her feelings and how she was projecting a lot of that unfinished stuff onto her daughter. So her daughter was getting this mixed message on the one hand in her calm, sane moments, yes, you should be able to express your feelings and your preferences. But then when her daughter did it in any kind of big way, she just became literally enraged, went into a state of fury. It's so interesting because I uh, would go into, uh, because I've had that experience a lot too. And I I don't go into rage. I just shut down. I just uh-huh, I dissociate, yeah. which isn't great, you know, which is terrible too. Right. Or and now I've yeah. gotten much better at being present and like being a container for her big emotions. But that first, mm-hmm. just the first six months of you know, just when your baby's crying all the time, yeah. I would I was just like ah, I I would yeah, dissociate. Yeah. And, and I am so yeah. proud of her for being able to say no and to yeah. be her big self. What I personally need help with, Susan, if you have any advice is, which I'm sure you do because you're the expert, um, you mentioned in the book about, you know, you need to have a big period, you know, with when you have decided, when a parent decides that no is no, or this is what's going to happen, that Mm -hmm. there needs to be a big period at the end of it and that it's not up for discussion and um, or so that you don't become the two lawyers. Right. And right, right. And so for me, as I've raised, I'm raising a daughter and my intention is for her to be able to express her opinions and have big feelings. I, and I am 
hyper empathetic <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, really into connection. My uh, weak spot right now is being able to hold that big period. How- big fat period. Yeah. At the end of the sentence. So if I say to you, um, sweetheart, you're my little girl, it's time to brush your teeth. Okay. What has happened there in that interaction? Who's You've in asked charge? permission because you just asked, a, you ended yeah. it with a question mark and you asked, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm really not clear about whether you should be washing, brushing your teeth or not. I'm suggesting it might be a good idea, but I have no, there's no decisive kind of captain-y alpha energy around that, right? Right. And I'm not talking about control and bossiness. I'm talking about clarity, which children want. Sweetheart, it's time to brush your teeth. Now you tell me you don't want to do it. Okay, let's play this out. No, I don't want to. And what I'm going to do, Ellie, is I'm going to demonstrate what most parents do, and I call this act two parenting. Is that okay with you? Of course. And then we'll circle back and I'll show you a different way, cool. which is what I teach. Um, sweetie, sweetie, it's time to brush your teeth, okay? No, I don't want to. Honey, it's so good for your teeth. You want to get all that icky, dirty stuff off your teeth because then you won't have big, you know, won't sit there and make holes in your teeth. And you don't want to do that, do you? No, five more books. Honey, you know, Mommy, I was already said, you know, I'll tell you what. We'll do two books after you brush your teeth, but let's go. Come on. Come on. Let's go brush your teeth. It's going to be fun. Come on, honey. Let's go. No. No no books then. We're not going to read any books tonight if you don't get your teeth. Yes, books. No. No books. No. (laughs) No, it's not happening. Okay. um, Mommy's walking away now. I'm reading my books then. That's fine. (laughs) I'm not brushing my teeth. (laughs) Okay. So you see how that goes, right? Yeah. So that's in my my world. Oh, I, I see how that, that goes. That goes every night. <laughs> <laughs> I call it act two parenting. It's what most parents do. We move into lawyer mode or dictator mode. We threaten. If we go into dictator, we threaten argue, bribe, yeah. explain if we're in, yeah, bribe. If we're in lawyer, it's the argument and the explanation, um, the bartering, the bargaining. Mm-hmm. So, um, That's act two parenting, and we are coming at our kids, not alongside them. So what I teach parents to do in my workshops and my classes and everything is something called act one parenting, and it's such a huge thing. And what I want to do is kind of give you and give your listeners just sort of a taste of that. It's not the whole deal, but um, I want you to kind of have something practical to start noticing in your week after our conversation so that you can start, am I in Act 2 or am I in Act 1? If you just do that, that in and of itself will start some shifts from, uh, be, to start. So Act 1 parenting, let me tell you a few things that you're going to hear me doing. First is it's not wordy. Did you notice like how mm-hmm. long I was going on there? Mm-hmm. But the holes in the teeth and the dentist and I could many times I think kids tune us out after about seven words. That's my guess. Such a good point. So yeah, and that has to do with the clarity because they're all they're yeah. hearing is us wavering. Like yes, that's how yes. they're interpreting it. Right. Yeah. And so maybe if I fling a whole lot of words at you, even more words, I'll finally wear you down and convince you, child, to brush your teeth. <laughs> Sometimes it works comes... with men, but like they just give up. <laughs> Maybe it's like if you'll stop talking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so it's not going to be wordy. In fact, 
it's going to be like, mm, really? Ah, oh, gosh, darn. Mm. And I sometimes call it comic book language, like, wow, pow, bam. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. So it's it's not I'm not appealing to that left language brain. I'm going over to the right where the child is if they're upset. Mm-hmm. The other thing you're going to hear me doing is acknowledging what's true for them. Doesn't mean I'm agreeing. But in act 1, you're sort of conveying to the child, I am so captainy here. I am so the captain of the ship that I'm capable of hearing what's true for you of visiting your planet. Now, on your child's planet, she's what, two and a half? Yeah, almost. On your child's planet, it makes no sense at all to stop reading books, to go put water and some other substance on a brush and move it back and forth for a minute. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense, Mm -mm. right? And so you're visiting the child's planet. It makes no sense at all to a 12-year-old whose social standing seems to her to be completely reliant on her going to the mall at 10 o'clock with her friends for a movie. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean you're going to agree or let her do it, but if you can acknowledge what it's like to be her, which is the theme song title for Act One, it has mm-hmm. a theme song. What is it like to be you? Then you are immediately going to create more receptivity and help kids let down their guard and be less rigidly defended against you. And again, this is so applicable applicable to marriages and other relationships. And finally, in Act 1, you're going to hear me asking questions of you or making comments based on my visit to your planet that are likely to produce a yes or a nod of your head so that I really convey to you and you get the feeling that I get it. I get what it's like to be you. I'm acknowledging your reality, okay? Okay. So, sweetheart, it's time to brush your teeth, honey. Let's let's get going. No books. Mm, you were hoping that we could just read more. Winnie the Pooh. Mm, Winnie the Pooh's one of your favorites, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you'd rather read than brush your teeth, huh? Mm-hmm. Five more books. You wish- you wish mommy would read more books and not take you to the bathroom for your teeth. Uh-huh. I know, lovey. This one and this one. Mm. Well, let's go. No, books. Mm-hmm. So a few things here. In general, and you can tell me if this is was true for you, did you feel a little confused by what I was doing? Like I'm not arguing, I'm not explaining. Yes, but it felt good. It was like yeah. a warm confusion. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to put it. A confused child, and again, I don't mean this in a mean way, but is generally left hand below right. You know, if you have a kid and you get off the plane and your kids have been just behaving horribly, but you get off the plane in some other country and they don't speak the language and there's all kinds of sights and smells and sounds they're unfamiliar unfamiliar with, they are going to stick close to you and do what you say. Absolutely. If I know. You have I love a blackout that, <laughs> in your house, right? And the power goes out. Your kids, they may have been bouncing off the walls. They are suddenly sort of present with you. Exactly. It's the presence. It's like the confusion is actually presence because I was wondering what you were going to say instead of knowing that you're going to go on your like usual tirade. Mm -hmm. I was curious about where you were going to go with this. 
Yeah, and you have a very young child. So imagine that you're nine and we're having this interaction. Um, because your your daughter's just on the low end of my using this. She's about mm-hmm. the, as young as I would go with using Act One. Mm-hmm. I would do another version of it. But I want to demonstrate this for parents with older kids as well. So that when I'm coming alongside you and acknowledging you, by the way, did I keep talking about how we have to go brush our teeth or did I just say it once? You just said it once. Because if I'm clear, I'm not going to keep discussing it. It's not up for negotiation. The teeth brushing is... So if I said to you, Ellie, um, when we have our interview today, um, I hope it's okay with you if I... If I uh, kind of take the lead in offering some advice and, and role plays. Um, so I'm just hoping I can sort of take the lead on that. I'm, I'm just hoping that it's okay with you that if I, if I keep mm-hmm. saying it, you're going, what's her problem? Like, yeah, of course. She yeah. doesn't sound very sure of herself. Right. So sweetie, uh. we have to, we have to get uh, in the car to go take your brother to soccer. Okay. Okay. We have to go to soccer. I know you want to stay home, but we really have to go. I know you can't stay here with, um, by yourself, honey, you just can't stay here by yourself. We have to go. Okay. Yeah. And now I'm feeling like, tense and I'm trying yeah. to kind of shut you yeah. out. Yeah. Because, and, and I keep mentioning, but we do have to go. We're going to be late. Like I just have no clarity around it all. Sweetheart, right. we're going to be taking your brother to soccer now. And you say, you'd be, you'd be a child. No. Who I don't want to go yeah, to soccer. I, Soccer's stupid. I know. I know you were really hoping you could stay back. Yeah, let me stay by myself. I know, you're wishing. Now, I give you in fantasy land what you would like to happen in real life. You're really wishing that I would sort of bend the rule and and let you be here all all alone. Yeah. I know, honey. It's a drag. It's Gosh. You were having so much fun here, and now you have to leave. I get it. Oh, and now it makes it feel so much better to leave because it feels like we're on the same team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I don't keep saying, but we have to go. But right, right, right. Late. Like, because then I'm putting you in charge. Then I'm putting yeah. you in charge of my comfort, my tension, my worry, my anxiety about being there on time. I'm putting my child in charge and begging, pleading, cajoling, bribing, threatening. And children, as I say, intuitively know it is not their job to be the grown up in the room. If we have to go, then be clear about it. Right. I, that's where the big period comes in. And that's the big fat period. And that's where a lot of times, and this is what I explored more in the second book, but it's in the first one as well. A lot of times it's our insecurity, our unfinished business around, Mm -hmm. do I deserve, for instance, like in in the second book, I talk about a mom who can't get her daughter to clean a room. and And it brought up a lot of her feeling that her voice didn't matter, not only in Mm -hmm. her childhood, but in her marriage, Mm -hmm. you know, that she was invisible. So this kind of a blend of ineffective communication because she was so desperate and triggered, um, but also, you know, anger and rage that was so off-putting to her daughter and sort of disproportionate to the crime, right? Yes. Like pouncing on her daughter for not cleaning up. Kind of like, well, okay, you know, I didn't clean up, but it brought up for the mom all the feelings of people ignoring her and not listening to her or respecting her wishes. Right. And the kid has to deal with all this baggage that's going back yes. 50 years for exactly. the mother or hundreds of years with mm. grandparents. And I mean, right, suddenly right, we're right. bringing all of our transgenerational baggage to mm-hmm. our children. Mm-hmm. I love in Parenting Without Power Struggles, and I cannot wait to read uh, Parenting mm-hmm. with Presence 
with Parenting Without Power Struggles, you also give so many uh, amazing little bits of advice on how to connect with our children, you know, on a daily basis, because it's a lot easier to parent without power struggles if you've already sort of fed the meter with, mm-hmm. um, with your connection with your child. And so everyone needs to read it and I'll, maybe we can share some of those on social media, but also I do want to ask you a little bit. I read one of your pieces for the Huffington post on micro rejection. And so mm. part of this is about connecting with our children, like different ways that we can create those opportunities, but then also being aware of when are we doing micro rejections? Cause those add up and, yeah. and they feel like these little nicks. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you're not well anymore. These children aren't well because they've been picked on or rejected time mm-hmm. and time again, and the parents aren't even aware of it. So can you just talk a little yeah, bit about that? That's great. I'm really glad that you brought that up. So my work is also very much based on attachment and fortifying and developing a deep and abiding attachment with our kids from infancy, the moment that they're our, you know, born all the way through adulthood. I have a 25-year-old and I'm still building attachment and strengthening attachment and connection. I'm not parenting but I'm, I still have this you know, amazing relationship, just like with my husband. We're always building attachment. So when we are outside of attachment with someone, we are not inclined to cooperate with them or be subject or influenced by them. And that's a good thing. You don't want your kids to be influenced by strangers who may not have their best interests at heart. Now, some may, but, but in general, the wiring is that we... Are, are inclined to be friendly and cooperate with and try to please people that we feel close to. That's just very basic. And so when a child is chronically defiant or resistant or misbehaving, one of the things I'm always going to look at is, does this child feel closely connected and attached with that parent? Do they feel liked by the parent? Do they feel enjoyed by the parent? Do they feel cherished and seen as as is, not, you know, constantly told how they should be different or better? And so micro-rejections is a term one of my clients actually used when she was talking about those little scowling faces, expressions, you know, um, or the, you know, the grimace or the unfriendly kind of gesture or comment or tone that does the opposite of helping the child feel liked and seen and cherished. Just this little subtle rejection. It's not necessarily the big stuff that we can all add up and remember. If you were spanked or or hurt as a child or humiliated on a regular basis, right? You'll maybe remember those, they're big, but these small little micro rejections where um, the child shows us something that she's done and we sort of, kind of don't really say anything or we frown about it. Now, believe me, I am not suggesting in any way that everything our child does, we should just, you know, praise and I'm not into that at all. I don't think we should set ourselves up to, you know, constantly tell our kids that they walk on water or that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I just, (laughs) it's off-putting to me. But but when our child leaves an exchange from uh, with us, feeling less than, 
somehow, feeling diminished, feeling unseen. That adds up, those micro moments. And similarly, when you have a moment with your child that's just friendly. I did a webinar last week um, on why kids are often so angelic and perfect when they're at other people's houses or they're Uh at school, and then they're just like terrors at home. And it was a really great webinar. I think we're going to make it available to people who... um, who opt in? We'll, we'll figure My out. My mom way. had a phrase for it: something uh, public angel or something, and then house <laughs> devil. Have you ever heard that? That's so cute. And that's I was really like, "Thanks cute. a lot, mom." House devil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's strong, but it's yeah. cute. I called it. I think in one of my the promotions they put a little devilish, because kids aren't ever just one thing. But I had a whole hour with people talking about this phenomena, and one of the things I talked about was that um, I asked parents on this webinar because there's a live interactivity, what percent of the interactions you have with your children are friendly, are just friendly, versus either criticizing or trying to get them to do something or stop doing something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had people in the 80, 90%, most of my interactions are critical <laughs> or about getting them to do something, do a task, help me get something checked off the list, homework, bath, shower, dinner, you know. Right. And or and so, sometimes even when it's a, a positive thing, I remember when I, uh, got a role in a movie, my first role in a movie. And I called my mom and I was so excited. I was like, I, mm-hmm. you know, I got this small part in this movie and it's how exciting. And she was like, that's great. Now go get the next one. And you're like, oh, yeah, exactly. Great so example. Even uh, when it's super positive moment uh-huh. and they think they're matching you, sometimes they feel like it's like, no, you're, now you're trying to top me or you're just like putting me back on that treadmill. Like we need this right. moment. Let's like, right, right. this is the win because the next right. one's not going to come for a bit. Right. It's never enough. Like we're never yeah. quite enough. Like, you got to be plus. Now, what can we do to get you an A? Yes. Yeah. So when kids feel that they can never quite just be who they are and be accepted and loved and enjoyed as they are, which is our projection onto them, our desperate need for them to be something else so that we feel better. Um, it's an impossible thing, and it and it dilutes what I call the pH of the relationship that we have. You know, I imagine that we have a relationship with our kids and that when, if you had a cylinder, let's say, of liquid, and that liquid chemistry-wise, the pH was too acidic. You don't bring it back to neutral by adding, by uh, taking out acid, right? You have to bring it to neutral by adding alkaline or base. So when you have a relationship with a child and and we say that the pH of that relationship is acidic, then you're going to see a kid who ignores you, tunes you out, has tantrums and meltdowns on a regular basis when you ask her to do something is just not in a cooperative frame of mind with you because the pH is too acidic. Now, you don't change that by removing things. You change it by adding attachment. Basically, you help change the pH of a relationship, and this is true for any relationship, by having more loving, enjoyable, friendly interactions with that person. And automatically that relationship changes. Here's an example. 
with you and me. Okay, we met, right, mm-hmm. at, at a conference. And let's say that we met very briefly, and the bulk of my interactions with you were about my books and about my websites and about my work and maybe some things that you should do differently in your <laughs> podcast, right? Uh-huh. Things you hadn't asked for. And by the way, I can't think of a thing, but right? right. How would you walk away from that relationship with me? Um, I'd feel a little icky, or I'd feel insecure, probably, personally. I would and feel shaken. And then if I called you up and I said, listen, defensive. I'd really love it if you would blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I'd love it if you pitched all my stuff on your show. But yeah. But I'll just send you the links or what. Right, right. And you'd be like, really? Right? Yeah. But we had dinner together. Like, we, mm-hmm. we, you know, I think of you first and foremost as a new friend way before mm-hmm. I think of the work that you do. And hopefully you feel that because that's how I do my work. Like, I just want to work with people who I enjoy, who I like. You know, it's such a treat. It's such a pleasure. Mm. I'm smiling really big right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because we live in the same town and we have similar sensibilities. Oh, it's a new friend. You're so cool. So the work thing is sort of a cherry on top for me, but I don't, my life is too short to make it about pushing myself on people or yeah, I just can't do it. I, that's the bottom line. And so in the context of a friendship, if I were to say to you, even if I were to say something outside of work, like, gosh, Ellie, I really want your advice on this outfit that I'm thinking of wearing. Or if you asked me, because there's a feeling of friendship, if you said, you know, you know, I'm thinking of wearing this to this awards thing, uh, what do you think? And I said, well, you want my opinion, you're much more likely to receive it and act on it and take it and be interested in it if you feel that I like you as a person, that most of our interactions are are about our connection and they're friendly, as opposed to if all of our interactions were me criticizing you or critiquing you, and then I said, you're going to wear that, right. right? Right. You'd probably wear it just to spite me. <laughs> yeah, and that's teenagers, right? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, do you have any uh, life hacks or survival tips for how we can stay sane and not in power struggles with our with our extended family? Mm. (laughs) You know, um, we do get stirred up and triggered. There are so many parts of ourselves that are kind of invisible that come to the forefront under those circumstances with family and, you know, just old, old junk that rises to the surface. And it could be the smallest thing your mother-in-law might say, well, honey, we don't usually set the table that way. And you might be like, you've never liked me. (laughs) (laughs) Or one of your siblings might, you know, tell the punchline of the joke that you're delivering at the table. And you always undercut me. You always have to one-up me. Mm-hmm. And so I like to ask pa- parents or people to just, you know, take your right hand, gently pat your heart, and you say to yourself or whisper under your breath, they're there, you know, that we we acknowledge this is a tough moment. And I think one of the first steps for healing when we go into those sort of challenging stressful situations. First is to set your expectations really, really low. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. There was a TED talk about that once. Yeah. Yeah. The secret to happiness is low expectations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, maybe the expectation is I'm going to get through the three days just feeling, you know, 
a warm, fuzzy feeling three times while I'm there or um, noticing. And here's the other one that sort of segues into notice when you feel that your blood pressure is rising or some old painful feelings are, are coming to the surface and notice them, name them. There's that feeling again. It's so familiar. There's me feeling inadequate and insecure again. And then you can do the there, there, the way you would a child, but except you're offering that to yourself in the most loving, maternal, sweetheart kind of way to yourself. You take a breath and you notice and you name it if you can. And then, um, you know, go to the bathroom and just take a minute or two to be present with the feelings. The amazing thing about feelings is that if we don't resist them or try and talk ourselves out of having them and we just allow them to be there, the feeling of maybe insecurity or sadness or hurt or confusion or disappointment. So you go in the bathroom and you just, you know, take a moment and you just feel it, let it wash over you the way waves on in the ocean, you know, wash over you, but they recede. The reason we get really wound up around family is that, number one, we have expectations and an agenda that um, may or may not be realistic. And number two, we try and shove those feelings back under the surface because they're very uncomfortable. But feelings don't last that long. If need be, just go in there and have a little bit of a cry. Um, Allow yourself to feel the disappointment and the sadness that your family aren't quite where you wish they were. Mm-hmm. Where they don't see you the way they wish you wish you could be seen by them. They still are holding the image of you when you were 14, or they're still, still bringing up stories about you that you can't even remember, let alone relate to. And you know what? That's a moment of grieving. That's a moment of feeling your sadness around that, that it isn't the way you wish it could be. That is where you have liberation, when you can feel the sorrow and the sadness and allow those feelings to wash over you, you will move into a sort of peaceful acceptance. And then you walk it back into the room. These are the people, they just are where they are in their journey. You bless them, you accept them, just like you want to be accepted for where you are. And you look for any bright spots, and it may be that it's a bright spot with your child or, you know, something in nature outside. You look for something that is is sweet, you know, and enjoy that. Allow yourself to enjoy that instead of focusing all your energy and attention and obsessing on playing and replaying the mean and harsh comment that somebody made at dinner. Let it be, you know, feel sad about it. Um, There's this incredible story of two monks and they had, I'm sure you've heard it, but there were these two monks that, of course, they'd taken vows of celibacy and they were walking on a journey back to their monastery and at one point they came to a river and there was a maiden there who, um, you know, was struggling with how to get across the river. So one of the monks put the woman on her back, on his back, and carried her across the river and set her down again and, and took up on the journey with his fellow monk. And they walked in silence for several hours. And finally, the second monk said to the one who had carried the woman, you know, we have taken a vow of celibacy. You know, you picked that woman up and put her on your back. And, you know, we're not, that that's really, you know, pushing it with with our vows and the monk says to his partner, you know, I set that woman down many hours ago. Are you still carrying her? Oh, <laughs> that's good. Wow. 
Thank you, Susan. Thank You're you welcome. so Sweetheart. much. Um, My pleasure. I can't wait to have dinner again with you soon. And yeah, I'm so yeah. excited for our listeners to pick up your books and we'll be sharing all of your information. Awesome. Um, Thank you. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Thank you.